I just read an article in Mon- at MontanaFreePress.org that explains how the company Land Trust has uh, locked up 400,000 acres of hunting land in Montana since 2019. And they're also locking up land in a lot of other states. Uh, the article also profiles a 50,000 acre ranch that was in block management until last year, the year before when they were approached by land trust and convinced to stop allowing public hunting access through the block management program and instead adopt this pay to play model with uh, land trust. If this is as alarming to you as it is to me, then there's something you can do to help fight this. I recommend that you go to montanahunteraccess.org uh, and make a donation. This is our new group, our, our new group's website. It was developed by our ally, Atlas McKinney, and it's, uh, the website is devoted to our, our new group, uh, uh, Montana Hunters for Access. And what we do is we raise money and put together work projects so the money is to buy appreciation gifts that we dole out to farmers and ranchers and other large landowners to thank them for being enrolled in the block management program and ensuring that the local butcher, the hardware salesman, the, the, the clerk at the gas station, what have you, still has a place to hunt. And uh, in addition to giving appreciation gifts to block management participants. We're also orchestrating work days. So you can sign up on the website to come out and help with a work project on a participating block management ranch as another way of saying thanks to large landowners for allowing public access. So yeah, I, I think that this kind of eff- these kinds of efforts are essential if we're going to beat back groups like land trust and outfitters, et cetera, that are just trying to, and private other private parties, they're just trying to like gobble up and uh, exclusive hunting access for themselves. So please go to MontanaHunterAccess.org, make a donation, and or sign up to help with labor. Um, uh, as a way of giving back today. This is the Hunt Quietly podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Ben Loss, how you doing? I am quite good. How are you doing, sir? Good. You and I, we recorded a podcast episode a number of months ago, but I was kind of in a crappy mood. And I don't feel like I was doing a very good job. It was kind of scattered. And uh, we decided to do it over again. And um, it was a opportunity, though, like that that rough draft podcast was an opportunity to get detailed about some things 
And, you know, in that, through that conversation with you, I learned that you're somebody that uh, is interested in figuring out what the data say on topics of interest. And, and uh, so you and I both kind of did a little bit of a deep dive into the data as they pertain to hunt quietly related topics, topics that we address on this podcast. The data could, are some of the data that we've looked at between your, yourself and me are, are from peer-reviewed articles in the scientific literature, survey data, um, uh, wildlife biology studies, etc. So I guess that's the theme as I see it for this conversation is what do the data say about about things that we talk about on the podcast and beliefs that I I have and people that agree with me have. So one thing I wanted to start out with was you and I in our rough draft talked a bit about about hunter numbers and the 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 date the trends in hunter numbers through time and of course this is highly relevant because there's been so many articles written in the last several years about lamenting the decline in hunting participation um and 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 asserting from those from those data the data and the evidence for the decline that we needed to do more to get people a feel and i obviously don't agree with that i strongly disagree with that and um it's funny like i think it was in 2020 uh andrew mckean from outdoor life he wrote out wrote an article and this is a an a magazine that's written several articles that take the mainstream view that have taken the mainstream view that we need to work on increasing hunter participation based on various sources of data from fish and wildlife management agencies, federal and state. Uh, and then he drops this article in his own in the, his own magazine that has published all these other ones saying we need to work on r3 and getting more people involved and the title of the article is something like we have we have no many we have no idea how many hunters there are i'm just going to read a little bit from this article this 2020 article i believe it's 2020 mm -hmm. it turns out we don't know how many hunters there are paraphrasing there and might not know for years that's because the mechanism used to tally license sales in any given state let alone on a national basis is clunky inefficient and complicated by agencies reluctance to share their customers information or buying habits the result is that journalists like me use whatever data we can find to report on hunting participants participation trends. We often turn to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's annual census of national hunting license data. But it turns out that 
even those austere federal numbers aren't particularly reliable. Quote, even though the UFWS reports show calculation year 2020 and calculation year 2019, they are in fact using sales data from 2018 and 17, says Jim Kirkurto, a consultant to the outdoor and conservation industry. Quote, I bet less than 10% of people know those are two-year-old data. Licensed sales numbers are further confused by the crazy quilt of license type types that each state sells. For instance, Pennsylvania sells a lifetime license, but the hunter who buys it is counted as a participant only in the year of purchase even though they're probably going afield for many years afterwards. And if a fishing license comes with a bonus hunting license, the sportsman or woman who bought it is often not counted in the national census. So uh, he's arguing here that we, because of all these complications, we don't really have a sense of, we don't really know how many hunters, how hunter numbers have changed through time. But I'd argue, and we talked about this previously you and I that it's not even the right question yep it's what from a crowding perspective there's instances where this can matter but if one guy hunts two days or two guys hunt one day that can have a similar impact yeah it becomes a matter of what for me it because it's a it is a matter of what we're trying to optimize yep and the thing that I, I guess we're trying to optimize, because I'm kind of a, I'm a bit of a secular humanist, we're trying to optimize the satisfaction that hunting brings society. That's, that's the thing that we're trying to try, trying to maximize the best we can. And so when I think about that, uh that like the hunter number thing it just seems like without context without putting that in context it 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 doesn't it doesn't tell us what we need to know to know if we're maximizing the utility of hunting yeah so one thing i think about is habitat loss and there was an article in frontiers in ecology and the environment that came out last year. I'll read a little bit from the abstract. Using national databases of wildlife habitat. Okay, oh, I'm sorry. I got to back up here. This is not the abstract. This is a popular press article written about the research article. Okay. So it's, a good sum, it's a good summary of the article. It's someone trying to translate academic speak to the broader population. Yep. Yeah. You... you but the yeah, and the the original article was was published in Frontiers in Ecology and Environment. Yep. Using national databases of wildlife habitat, the researchers mapped out the twenty four species ranges and tracked habitat change in those ranges over time using the Google Earth Engine Land Trend algorithm. The data revealed that imperiled species lost the least habitat, three point six percent on federally protected lands and lost the most habitat, 
8.6% on private lands lacking any protections. This is all over the last 30 years. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. 8.6 cumulative. 8% or 8.6 over the last yep. yeah, on, uh, 30 years on private lands for bordering on 4% on okay. federally protected lands. Okay. State lands and lands protected by non-governmental organizations had losses of species habitat similar to one another, uh, about four and a half percent, but still greater than losses on federal land. So that's one thing I think about when one flaw I see in relying on raw hunter participation data, even if it was reliable, is that we just don't have that. Okay, so this isn't for endangered species. I can't see why if they had done the study for all wildlife where it would be dramatically different in any way, shape, or form. Seems like the rates would, maybe even more, maybe even more if you look at like something like white-tailed deer that live in the suburbs. Yeah. You know? Particularly, you know, white-tailed deer is very much an exception because it's a, a utilitarian animal. What do you it's mean well, by that? Well, it's well adapted to multiple types of 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 environments. It's it can a live generalist. In, yeah, it can live in it can live in the prairie. It can live in the forest. It can live hot, cold, very wide range. But yeah. something something like our friend the prairie chicken, even if you put up a windmill, it's not going to be within a few miles of that most likely. Yeah. So even if you've got good cover on the ground, that scares the shit out of them. They're out of there. So, so that's yeah, not usable, I'm open, land. If, if I had to say those values I just threw out there, five, four and a half percent for federal for state land, four percent for federal land, nine percent for private land. Yeah. I I bet in this I bet those numbers are higher for species that aren't endangered. Yeah. So if you knew nothing else, you'd say if hunters are rational people, there should be fewer of them. Each year. And yeah, there's a lot of ways you could put it. That's definitely one. The Another way of putting it is that our three practitioners are either unconcerned or completely ignorant of, of basic wildlife biology. Yeah. I, I think that the most generous argument to make and um, is that they're trying to take a very, very long-term view, but they're not quite being as upfront with their members that things are going to suck for a very long time till the amount um, of dues, uh, uh, sort of being able to market that larger constituency to Congress people will result in more habitat and turn the tide and increase it. But there's a lot of assumptions, maybes, what ifs within that. Yeah, and it, and it all comes at the expense of the hunter right in front of you and what right. his opportunity right. and satisfaction is right. going to be. Right. And, right. you know, well, maybe it's predicated on a, the assumption that you're going to make any progress. Yes. Like, and, and, and all you can do is, is, is as a, as a, a hunting, not for profit is, is say, we think it will work. Right. We think it'll get better. Well, it hasn't we, worked in the last 30 years. Yeah, I, I I think I think the it, I mean it, it's it's unfortunate that we don't have a control group to say you know 
take every not-for-profit off the map where where would Habitat be otherwise. But it's still going down. Yeah. That much, it's impossible to deny that. I mean, the Bob White quail population over the last, I think, 60 years or something is down 85%. 85%. Yeah, that's wild. If you're a quail hunter, there's only a finite number of places where you're really going to go and have and have something that looks like a decent hunt. And I even had a, a biologist tell me if the covey is under five, never shoot at it because even if you take one, the odds that that covey survives another season is is very, very low. Wow. So then the thing comes becomes for me, I've thought about this hard enough now that I have a, a kind of a settled opinion on what the metric should be. What the what should drive what what number of hunters should we be striving for in the United States? And to me, it seems like hunter satisfaction is the penultimate metric because it integrates so many things. If if a species becomes imperiled, then uh, hunter satisfaction as it relates to that species is going to be very low. Yeah. Um, well, well, the, the second a species become imperiled, if the North American wildlife model means anything, and it's supposed to because the public trust doctrine is 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 law, um, they should be stepping in either at the state level. Well, or the I know when I say imperiled. I don't mean like. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I see what you. Okay. Split. Fair enough. Yeah, if yeah, their yeah. numbers decline, like quail yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it integrates that. It integrates uh, hunting opportunity, and it also in integrates crowding. Yeah. So that I, I just think that that's a much more reasonable um, metric. So. If if they and, and it's it's a it's it's a not a distinction without a difference. It's a distinction with a huge difference because yeah. if it was based, if that was what we were focused on, instead of writing articles like uh, that that are like we're doomed because there's no hunters, we're doomed because of the decline in hunters and the average age of the hunter is increasing. It yeah. would be we are in trouble because people aren't deriving as much satisfaction as from hunting as they used to. Yeah. yeah. But that, you never read that article. Yeah. You know? It's, um, and I mean, in the, in the long term too, um, it's unlikely to be sustainable. And if you don't, what's, what's uh, unlikely to be sustainable. The future of of that core constituent constituency of hunters, the so satisfaction is eventually going to plummet, and then you're even in a much worse uh, uh, predicament from a conservation perspective. Yeah, that's a that's a you know that's that's an interest very interesting point. There's this article. Got, there's this one. So I'm jumping way ahead. Okay, <laughs> my little outline I put together for this. Um, so there's this article that this guy from a professor from Montana State wrote, 
And this is like more of a synthesis of the literature. It's called the, the literature on, on, on crowding and, and access. It's called a place mm. to hunt some observations on access mm. yep. to, to wildlife resources in the Western U S you've read this. Yeah. I remember that one. Stephen Eliason. I, yeah, he, I, he, he, he's a candidate for the podcast. Oh yeah. I actually, I actually reached out to him on email. Never heard back. I got to press him again. Uh, but he says, I hope this is the right part. Oh, yes, it is. In recent years, there has been an emphasis on hunter recruitment, retention, and reactivation programs to increase hunter numbers. And he's through the, this whole paragraph, he's citing yep. peer reviewed yep. studies. It is important for state wildlife agencies to understand how crucial access to the resource is for our three programs to be successful. If hunters are unable to access locations that contain wildlife, they will lose interest in the activity. Larson et al., 2014, reported that, quote, physical and perceived access to, and I underline this word, quality land is a key component of the social habitat that drives hunting participation, unquote. Quality hunting experiences are essential for the recruitment and retention of hunters. Uh, Schumer et al. Yep. contend that, quote, a minimum number of high-quality hunting experiences are needed annually to recruit, retain, and reactivate, in this case, waterfowl hunters. Again, yep. he's, he's quoting some. I'm quoting him, quoting Schumer yep. et al. Uh, you know, I've, I've taken a saying lately that, you can't be R three because they're internally inconsistent. You have you're either R one, which is retention, or you're R two, which is recruitment and reactivation. Because any gains with R two are going to come at the expense of losses in at the level of R one, and this guy is essentially saying that but backed up with a bunch of scientific literature yeah i guess it's what what we need is a heart uh, um an estimate of i would bet the r1 people um most of them are more hardcore than the r2 r3 so they might hang on a little farther so it might not at least in the first whatever years you'd measure uh wouldn't be wouldn't be a loss but eventually you just might get them through attrition yeah why okay so that that's just playing devil's that, advocate but it's okay it's, oh, all right let me try to understand your point uh i would say if you're working on retention if your focus is on retention yep. then your focus is on people that are at risk of quitting yeah that aren't hardcore i would rather go before i quit hunting i would take up a life of poaching and trespassing there's no way i would quit <laughs> yeah and i'm gonna find some success one way shape or form you know yeah so is that what i don't know what, what, yeah what? I, I i i it just seems to me that that um 
the big critical mass is to get someone start to start hunting. Then a habitat, a habit is formed and the energy to dislodge that. And the energy would be, you know, poor hunting over some, you know, it would strike me as odd if you hunted for 10 years, then you had a terrible season of crowding that you're probably going to hang up your your boots and sell your gun. It probably no. takes a few a few more years, few, few years of it, yeah. you know. And and another sort of working subtopic, I I think, is that the percentage of people left in hunting are increasingly more hardcore. Um, but that 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 leave that to the, the side for now. So I mean, but I but I fully agree with the priority. Well, I think the people that are going to be left in hunting, if I had to guess, are going to be people of means. Yeah, but I you guess can those, buy those, quality. You Those know. two might not always be mutually exclusive, but yes, I, I'd, I'd agree. Um, but the, what I, I would fully agree with the idea that the people who have been in the game first are the ones we should try to keep in. Uh-huh. Okay. That, that makes more sense to me. You know, yeah. And you, I could get, I could get nasty emails about comments like that, but I, I tend to agree with you. You know, even our fish and wildlife management agencies agree with you. Yeah. You get preference points. The longer you've been in a hunter, the more that just shows the longer you've been a hunter, the more our fish and wildlife wildlife yeah. uh, agencies at least tacitly value your experience. Yeah, and it's not I, I'm not sort of making just a, a sort of blind cast for seniority you know i'm I'm sort of assuming yeah. i'm assuming these people do it the right way and we have a broad agreement i think on on what the sort of right way is and so in that sense they're they they've paid their dues in in a manner consistent with with earning something and having some priority yeah because they would they would it they would have just as pure as motivations as the r2 r3 category therefore you know first in priority so the next thing i wanted to do was is talk about okay let me back up my the 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 thing that we should be trying to optimize in my view is is hunter satisfaction yeah do you agree because with that or, or do you have yes, a different okay because it is the intersection of supply and demand yeah. we don't need to resort to uh lots of data collection statistical sampling statistical error um to then try to intuit what needs to be done is everyone who seeks a worthy hunting experience able to achieve it right if not then let's go back and work on the easiest thing to lose and the hardest thing to build back up, which is habitat. In the economic world, it's known as a long duration asset. Mm. You know, if, if it gets if it gets knocked down, you can't just rebuild it in a day. You know, maybe in some instances a you know, even even something as similar simple as moving, you know, out of row crops and back into to CRP or native grasses. That doesn't right. happen in a season. And that's that's one of the fastest regenerating. If you want to get a forest back that has the proper mix of 
of young, middle-aged, and old growth, that's a lifetime. Wetlands can take a long time when you got to think about levees and drain tiles and all the kind of shit that's been put up there to get that back. And to, to your point on habitat, I mean, it was something like 680 million acres of prairie prior to European settlement. We're at 366 right now. Yeah. Losing more every year. Wetlands, less than half. 220 mm. million, we're at 100 million today. Mm. Two, 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 220 million what year? 220 million is the estimate as of 1600. Okay. Not quite wow. pre-settlement, but pretty wow. close. Yeah. So, I mean, if that hundred numbers going down doesn't scare the shit out of me, but that sure does. Yeah. Oh, as it should. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so if we're in agreement on satisfaction being the thing, then, then you have to think about what drives satisfaction. Yep. And this is where it's like, if you if you if you need to be told that crowding drives satisfaction, then I you know I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. The, uh, I'm going to lay out just a handful of the many studies that indicate crowding is a dominant driver of satisfaction. Yeah. So then we get to if that's where it's like. It's not a distinction without a difference because if you, if the thing you're trying to optimize, maximize, or increase is hunter participation, <laughs> you, you increase crowding. If the thing you're yeah. trying to maximize is hunter satisfaction, then it's definitely not the thing that you're, then, then a hunter, you're definitely not trying to increase hunter. Hunter numbers because we know that the supply of of quality hunting cannot be accommodated in in any reasonable period of time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's yeah. I got a good I got a good quote on that from Aldo Leopold actually too. Uh, let me let me read that and then I'm gonna then we'll get into this data on on satisfaction. Um, oh, again, this is from a place to hunt. Some observations on access to wildlife resources in the western U.S. The article I was just reading from. Um, uh, which is published in Geoform. Yep. Hot off the press just this year, 2022. In the western U.S., many individuals hunt on public land. This consists primarily of federal land, including U.S. Forest Service property and Bureau of Land Management land. In some places, state land is also accessible for hunting. However, it is important to note that public land is losing its appeal to some hunters because it is becoming increasingly crowded as individuals who have lost access to private hunting land flock to these hunting locations. A century ago, Aldo Leopold, this is in 2009 or 1919. Aldo yep. Leopold writes that hunting on the national forests will, in the future, attract more people for more time 
from a vastly greater territory. Ellipsis. Demand for hunting on forests will increase not only with population and with transportation, but especially with the rising price of hunting elsewhere. Pretty prophetic that he's <laughs> he figured that out over a hundred years ago. Yeah. He um, could see he could see the jet airline coming. Oh man. Isn't that wild? Well, I, I get what he what also year? has a great quote, I won't read it, but on, on technology and his annoyance. Oh really? Technology what, and hunting. What what year was the quote on that again? Nineteen nineteen. Nineteen nineteen. Oh, okay. So that what, what's interesting there too is that that is really before um hunting leases really took off and and the privatization really occurred in the east coast yeah isn't that which is wild e- which is even more that 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 he could already sort of he was playing a little bit of 4D chess on us there for sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no that's a, that's a really like he didn't he didn't, he was just yeah just using creativity to come up with a good guess well, of what the future was going to be but he i mean he also knew that elk and mule deer and all that are really really fucking cool and there's going to be yeah yep. even even if it's a smaller percentage of the population you still get aggregate population growth that's more absolute number of hunters yeah and and yeah. you know it doesn't bite everybody but it's going to bite some people and 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 they're going to become addicted to it and and there you go yeah so so the satisfaction uh one thing that probably number one, the most consistent factor is people want to get something like this idea, like, oh, we're just out, just a good day of hunting, or a bad day of hunting is a good, better than a good day at work, or just nice to be out here, that kind of thing does not does not is does not show up in the hunter satisfaction data like yeah over and over again these studies say that feeling like you have a chance to get one seeing the animal you're pursuing in a place where you're allowed to get it um the is dominant is as near as i could tell what yeah, I, I I think I think there's definitely something to um there has to be hope. If you yeah. drive all the hope away, yeah. the satisfaction is gonna plummet. I, I and I think this is a little bit where when you ask people, you know, why do you hunt? And I was looking at a few different things on this too, you're gonna say something to virtue signal, you know, it's about being out doors etc etc companionship that in some studies i saw did emerge as as um having the largest explanatory power so for all the stat people r squared but i don't i don't quite trust you came across studies where that explained more variation than than desire than like yeah just being there was well it it was um yeah. So, so I'm trying to think, remember how it was worded, but it was something like being in the out, being outdoors and, and participating in the process. And if I get something, that's a bonus. Okay. Like that, 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 
So they they gave him a little bit of of wiggle room there, but I don't I don't know if you read the um the Stuttgart Arkansas survey comparison for measuring satisfaction. It, it gets a it it, it gets know. a it gets a little bit mathy, but at the at the end of the day, it comes out with they've got to see a lot of ducks and they got to shoot them. And yeah. what's interesting is that the explanatory power of of those being the the meth the the ways of driving satisfaction becomes even higher on a guided hunt. So they looked at both guided and unguided. Oh, that makes sense because your expectations are higher if you hire a guide. But but the 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 either that or it's reverse causation, and people that have high expectations hire seek it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 they also pointed out when they looked at the unguided people, they they were they there was there was um, statistically significant contributions in working numbers of ducks setting up your decoys and seeing some results of that, even if, you know, they don't finish and you don't kill them. Okay. So there were, there were mitigating things there, which goes to another point. If you want to be more satisfied about your hunt, sometimes going with the guide, isn't quite the way to do it. Mm, right. Right. Well, <laughs> unless it is reverse causation. Yeah. So we, we, we yeah. don't, they don't, they don't fully dive into that and you'd have to disentangle that to really know for sure. But yeah. if if you if you took the generic person, um, you have you have more of a chance of of taking some. Pride to really in, figure it out, you'd have to have a. If it was people that ha have higher expectations, higher guides, or hiring yeah. a guide gives you higher expectations, you'd have yeah. to it, ran, random do a randomized controlled trial, yeah. which is the problem with a lot of these with. with I did find one study that looked at hunter satisfaction in a randomized controlled trial. Um, mm -hmm. And the only one, it was, uh, mm -hmm. I don't, I can't remember, the, I can't remember the name. It's called Sand Hill something. Okay. Sand Hill Wildlife yeah. Management Area. Yeah. I, I brief, I, and, I came and, across it. Yeah. And that's, they, it's, it's kind of a, a little bit hokey in one respect. This is a hunter satisfaction study, but it takes place inside a high wire fence area. Yeah, I, I, but, I recall reading yeah, the, the method. A, yeah. And uh, they did a number of studies there, but so they would have places with high numbers of hunters and low numbers of hunters experimentally assigned to these different quadrants. And they looked at satisfaction and with buck hunters definitely crowding decreased satisfaction as it did with doe hunters but when you control like it but the only when you controlled for harvest rate because the doe hunters actually shot more yeah when there were more people out yeah so they were more satisfied um because they had a higher chance of getting something, but if you control for their success rate, then they're less satisfied. But that was the only study I could find, but it's a controlled study where yeah. there was even even remotely any evidence that having more people out there, more crowding, everything else was more crowding, less satisfaction. 
Yeah, like it's. It. Let me I, just tick. I, let me just tick off a few. I only had, I, I I could have written down many more, but so it's amazing how much how much scholarship there actually is. Oh, it, there this. is. It is. And, it and, is. And that, that that that's sort of just one one takeaway. I think people can realize too. Um, yeah, yeah. Google Google Scholar is the place, folks, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Uh, if you want, if you got a question and you're wondering if anybody's actually used the method methods, uh, uh, a hunting related question, and if people have really have actually used the methods of science to address yeah. that question, yeah, go and, to and yeah, and it, it, the other small thing is it's not, um, it's more, it's more of a mature field of scholarship than you might guess because it it brings in a number of relatively mature disciplines biology ecology economics to some extent socioeconomics yeah. sociology so yeah you know there, there's we, there's there's certainly can, we can quibble on the extent to which sociology is a mature science but. <laughs> i i was i wasn't gonna yeah we, we, we can we, we can start up another podcast uh you know uh things uh, we need to rant on yeah uh overall okay I'm just going to read these. Overall satisfaction of duck, duck hunting parties with a day's hunt averaged 3.6. This is on a five-point scale. Yep. Plus or minus 1.2. Based on a rank scale of one very satisfied to five very, very unsatisfied to five very satisfied. Sorry, I didn't realize I it was going to say that. And it was best explained by a model that included hunting party success Hunter investment, temperature, and satisfaction with and satisfaction with duck numbers, habitat conditions, hunting reg regulations, and crowding. And that's uh, obviously is a study of duck hunters in the Journal of Wildlife Management, 2022. Here's another article: improved access and opportunity can lead to increased hunting pressure inter-hunter competition overcrowding and thus limit opportunities to observe and harvest waterfowl all of these factors known to negatively affect waterfall hunter satisfaction that's from an introduction and then they cite this are this article cites a bunch of papers so again this is just in the introduction of another paper saying that um citing a bunch of literature saying that hunting pressure with waterfall hunting um decreases satisfaction uh, a couple more and i'll be done with this but i took the time to look these up so damn it i'm gonna read them so here's a study uh, at west point the military academy they allow some hunting there most hunters indicated that knowing how many other hunters were out at the time not feeling crowded and feeling safer because other people knew where they were where they were hunting were very important reasons to hunt at West Point. And that's according to a center for the Center for Conservation Social Social Sciences Department of Natural Resources at Cornell University. That report was published in 2021. And then this, then there's an article. Okay, I'm just I will not gonna I got a bunch written here, but I think I can paraphrase. There's an article from Sweden on grouse hunters, mm -hmm. and they they did kind of like a 
mark and recapture study on hunters. They they kept track of what hunters showed up at particular hunting locations. And okay. then they surveyed them when they showed up there at these hunting locations and said when they were leaving, asked them if they felt crowded and if they and how much they got. And those two variables were very important in in dictating whether or not they returned to that location the next year. So they followed up with them and found out if they came back the next year. So there's just a handful of the many articles that if you had any doubt in your minds, ladies and gentlemen, whether crowding drives satisfaction, you can rest assured that it does. Yeah. I, I did find just the, so this is the, have you ever heard of the American hunting lease association? Yeah. Yeah. I've okay. heard, I, I think I get advertisements from them once in a while. Um, okay. Late, late so they, on. they, they did a 2019 report question two, which statement best describes your reason for hunting? I hunt to feed myself or my family. 13% rounding. I hunt only trophy animals. 2%. I hunt to enjoy the outdoors and consider it a bonus if I am successful. 76%. What? I I hunt because I am I believe I'm responsible for the continuation of our sport. 9%. Who would go out who would go out hunting because they were concerned about the future of the right? Like, oh, if I don't go out hunting, how is there still going to be hunting? Those people should just buy a tag and stay home. That would be uh that would accomplish the the ultimate goal, which is which is um advocates willing to open up their wallets, but not bumping me in the field. Yeah. So but but I, I think to the point earlier. Are you people picking say, up? Are you picking up? I got company here. Do, are you picking up people in the background? Okay. Good. No, I don't. I don't hear a thing. Okay. Outside, Go ahead. Once in a while, my dog scratches on the door, but I think this just belies every encounter I've had with a hunter for more than three minutes. So I think I would chalk up that survey response. To to virtue signaling, yeah, wanting to I, appear yeah, more yeah. noble. That's a problem. So with that, social that's science something that's is in. That, is that people might be yeah. saying what they, they their answers are? They tend to re- reflect what what you yeah. what they think you want to hear, or the way their answers reflect how they want to be perceived, not how they really think. Yeah, but with just, the crowd, just a big stuff, a big signal. With the crowding stuff, there it's not it's not yeah, it's but not infected with that with crowding questions yeah, the, because the, the, whether you feel crowded or not, I mean, it's not like the, it doesn't it doesn't say something about I, your character to say yeah, I, I mean, but I don't want to be crowded, you know. That yeah. doesn't it's not it, it, an it, indictment it, of your character to say that. No, I mean, but it's it's just it's, um, I mean, it just deflates you when you come up over the horizon and. You know, here's here's some other orange guy coming right at you. You know, um, we we all sort of know that intuitively. I think 
there's a gradient of introversion and extroversion across hunters. My gut would be they skew a little more introverted, um, but even among the extroverted ones, they're they're still going there for more man versus nature. Or at least if I'm hunting in a group, it's our group versus nature, not our group trying to figure out what, you know, Johnny and Fred's group is also doing, you know, that, that, I mean, so, but the, the other, the one critical thing though, about hunter satisfaction that needs to be disentangled in some of this is if I suck at hunting and I'm not satisfied because I didn't kill something that can't be part of it. So if I don't kill something because they're not around, that's, that's a, a, a broader problem. If it's cause I can't hit the broad side of a barn, my gun mount sucks, whatever. That's a me problem. And if I'm dissatisfied, I've got to be able to, I've got to be able to strip that out. Uh, if, yeah, if you're not just to say, absolutely. If you're not dissatisfied because you suck that, but I don't know. It just, it's outside of the purview of things I care about. Well, no, but, 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 but that's probably embedded in some of, in some of the surveys we're seeing because they're saying, did you harvest something? And they're seeing harvest correlating that with satisfaction. Yeah. Now it's a question of, did I not harvest something because of my own stupidity or, you know, I'm a novice hunter or, or I was lazy and, and, you know, whatever think of, you know, the million reasons you fuck up. Well, Um, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's still like. I guess my read of the literature is that people want to, people are more satisfied when they get something. I know that I, if I could look in a crystal ball and see, oh, I'm not going to get anything today. I'd go to work. Usually I'm out in the wilderness for a week or two at a time by myself. So that's not an option. I guess. Okay. I'll put it that way. If I'm about to go on a 10 day hunt. And I could look in a crystal ball and see I wasn't going to get anything. I'd stay home. Yeah. But just concoct a scenario of you're, you're doing your elk hunt. You, you do a great job calling and calling in a bull. You figured out your thermals. You got everything right. Then at the last second, you step on a twig that bumps him. You miss your shot. You are less satisfied than you would otherwise be but that's on you. And if you were to report your level of satisfaction, people would could wrongly intuit that there was crowding or so. So you'd, you'd need to be able to have some mechanism of citing, citing that, that primary. So we need to just add that to the, the sort of list of questions, you know, did I make a mistake? Okay. All right. Um, you know, I mean, not to, not to nitpick, but yeah. I don't want to, no, no, I don't want to get it twisted. Just, yeah. So then the the next thing I looked into was there with a lot of my stances, I, uh, I get with, I don't take a lot of stances with the, the, with my stance on whether or not we should be trying to get more people to hunt. Um, another argument people make against me is that we need more hunters to fund 
conservation and that I have an, uh, an anti-conservation stance in, in that my stance on not my belief that we shouldn't be trying to bring more people in is a anti-conservation stance. And, uh, I, so I, I looked into the effects of hunting pressure on, um, on wildlife yeah. because that's something that goes, that counters that, that never gets talked about is so more hunters means more hunting pressure. And that has consequence. I always suspected, I didn't look at the literature on it. I always suspected yeah. that it had negative consequences for wildlife. So I, I, I looked into that a bit because I think that that needs to be part of the conversation. If you're, if, if folks are like, truly concerned about conservation and habitat, then shouldn't they also look at the effect of, of what more hunters does to counter. So more hunters means more money. Sure. But more hunters also means negative stuff as well. Um, I need to start asking people when they come at me with this so that I can get a better sense Often people say we need more money for, we need more hunters to get more money for more conservation. I wish yeah. I could, I, I, I got to have it in my head to ask, give me some examples, not from the thirties when everything under the sun was, every, every game species under the sun was depleted. But now what did our dollars, what are, what are our dollars doing now? concretely and maybe i'll be convinced maybe i'll be convinced by that but anyway so i looked into as many studies as i could find in an hour and here's what i got mm-hmm. hunt effect again hunting the effects of hunting pressure on wildlife so if you're somebody that believes we need more hunters to protect wildlife I can encourage you to factor the stuff in. And the first thing I'm going to say helps make that case. Uh, apparently, more hunting pressure um, increases. Okay, so in this, as hunting pressure increases, the brain size in game birds increased in the study in Denmark. Hmm. Wild so, birds. Yeah. Okay. So in places that were heavily hunted, the per capita brain size was greater um, than in places where the hunting pressure was low. So the dumb ones get shot off. Is the Yep. So there's there's positive evidence that hunting animals makes them smarter. I mean that unless unless you're somebody that doesn't want the animals to get smarter. <laughs> I guess up to a certain point, right? Yeah. Then <laughs> when, when I'm the, not they, even gonna I, go ahead. When I was gonna say when the pheasant has a gun, then I'll think twice. Uh, the 
the yeah sure the 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 rest of the effects are negative that I found. Uh, I, I I'm not even going to attempt to paraphrase li literature on spatial distributions because yeah, that's a big it's what's that word voluminous. There's a yeah. shit pile of it. Yeah, and it's uh can be a little wonky at times too. And you, well, you need... I mean, the one thing is they go all the wildlife goes to places where they're getting hunted as much. Yeah. Private lands. Aggregate numbers matter. Spatial distribution matters both for you'll know for the ecology, but also then for access too and and huntability. But, right. Yeah. So that one's a no brainer. If you don't think that hunting pressure drives animals on a private land, I don't know what planet you're living on. Yeah. Uh, but um, then there's here's a Here's a, a little blurb from a review article on ducks. Because hunting disturbance causes under-exploitation of potential feeding grounds where population, where population limitation is considered to occur, so he's saying that that's what limits populations is, is, is feed, Yep. Such disturbance will, hunting disturbance will, have an impact at the population level, by definition. So, apparently, if you read this article in depth, which I did not, it'll lay out the case based on past studies that ducks spend less time eating, eating in, their, in their preferred spot where, there's, where all the good grub is when there's, uh, when they're, when they're, when hunting yep. pressure is high so they don't reach their genetic potential that has a, a downstream effect on well yeah to have clutches etc yeah yeah body condition scores uh yeah. overwinter survival it has implications for fecundity all that stuff yeah but uh, even if that even if that stuff wasn't true i'd argue you're perverting what that species is you know who what, what it was what it was naturally designed to be when I see an urban goose that has totally been sucked into living on a golf course, et cetera, and not following its migratory path, that's a, that's a loss in satisfaction to me. When I see, you know, an elk stand in front of a, a gas station, because uh, it's become more habituated to people, that, that's a, a deviation too from the way that thing was supposed to act. Now it's, it's responding, like you said, being smarter because nobody's shooting it there, but that just from a sort of purely romantic view, it's not where I want to see it. Right. From an aesthetic viewpoint, you're saying this, these critters are hanging out at the golf course next to the gas station. Cause it's yeah. safe. I mean, what, and what the fuck good does that do anybody? You know, <laughs> we, 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 I, I don't I, know. I kind of like seeing geese on the golf course. <laughs> oh, oh, I, 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 I don't think golfers do though. And the golf course manager no, certainly no, doesn't. I, I, you don't know how many times because when they when they shit too much, that amount of nitrogen kills the greens. Sure, keeping a, keeping a green costs tens of thousands of bucks, and you got eighteen of them. Hmm. They should let me go out with with one of those tactical shotguns and just have at it. You know. Um, but in my view that that should not, I mean that, and that's a, 
when someone's a wildlife watcher or a wildlife enthusiast, I think you have a better chance of when they go to Yellowstone and see an animal, that's got a better chance of creating an advocate. Yeah. And if it's a one for one and I go down and, you know, see it, you know, in the, in the parking lot, I mean, come on. And then you've got to think about things like, you know, moose tramplings of Alaska undergraduates walking from class to class, that kind of stuff. Oh, there was a guy, a handful, a number of years ago now that was on campus at a library. He was an elderly gentleman. He got killed by a moose. Yeah. I think yeah. that was in Anchorage. No, yeah. I think it was in Fairbanks. Some oh, really? kids had been throwing snowballs at this moose for a few days, and this old guy came out of the library and stomped them. But okay, so next one. Again, we're back to hunting pressure effects on game. This is a study of brown bears in Scandinavia. Hunting pressure had, and this is a quote, had a negative indirect effect on the population through an increase in in sexually selected infanticide. And that's published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society, which is a journal that I'd love to publish in. That's a freaking great journal. Mm -hmm. Um, So do you understand how that might work? Yeah, yeah. Oh, explain it to the listener. Well, so so basically there the um, you're getting a suboptimal mate pairing. And so that's leading you to suboptimal reproduction. Oh, that wasn't how I interpreted it. Okay. What I interpreted it was is if you there's high intense hunting pressure on boars yeah. and they get killed off, a lot of them get killed off, then the remaining boars, especially um subordinate boars, will range out more into new areas where they were never allowed to go. And they're and there they'll encounter male young males that are not their offspring and they'll kill mm-hmm. them. That was my take. Okay. On kind kind, kind of. Yeah. That's, that's exactly the same as, as what happens with, with lions in the Savannah where they get pushed out, encounter prides that are not their own, kill everything. Um, here's another, this is the Southwestern naturalist, uh, study of gadwalls in Louisiana quote, the most, this is from the abstract, the most significant increases in lipid reserves occurred when hunting was suspended. So again, the correlated study, but suggesting that fat reserves in gadwalls are negatively impacted by intense hunting pressure flying around uh, more yeah sure yep. uh feeding less um, yep. um a study in manitoba wide scale a large-scale study manitoba minnesota north dakota saskatchewan south dakota uh quote body ma- mass of hatch year and after year drake mallards harvested in low hunting pressure jurisdictions was 4.3 percent and 5.5 or 2.5 percent greater respectively than those harvested in high hunting pressure jurisdictions this is according to an article in journal of wildlife management 2013 and then i'm getting close to the end uh two more uh the 
there's been a lot of studies on stress hormones in in like cortisol and corticosterone in elk, whitetail, and wolves. Um, that there's several studies that show that those stress hormones increase with hunting pressure, and it's not just that these animals are feeling nervous under intense hunting pressure. Um, it's that, 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 uh, that, that can, there's very conclusive evidence that high cortisol levels, um, high stress hormone levels can, can cause, have deleterious health consequences, health and reproduction consequences. I even read a story, read an article about some white tailed an article, a research article on neonatal survival survival in white-tailed deer where their their survival rates were lower went down as as uh cortisol levels increased Mm. and then i think this is the one that some people would know about is that uh horn size there's been oh i got a couple more to tell you about this one is like there's been evolutionary pressure towards yeah uh, reduced horn size in in stone yeah. sheep. Um, That's why rattlesnakes don't rattle as much anymore. Oh, so there's that one. That there's many studies on stone sheep and horn size. Yeah. Um, and hunting pressures selected for reduced horn size, which you know, if you're a trophy hunter, I guess that's yep. a concern. But at least it's not. It's like I'm trying to make the case with this stuff that. Um, when you say we more hunters means or yeah, hunting is conservation. More hunters is more conservation. That you know, yeah. there's there, yeah, there's so a like, big there, there's I a big care. assumption. Yeah, uh, what I'm trying to say with the horn size one is that doesn't really make the case there. Yeah, I mean, you just you got it's not a conservation. I mean, it just the sheep have smaller horns, but it just thought it was meant worth mentioning. It, uh, there's also evidence in wild boars, and I don't see why it would be this way. It wouldn't be the case with other hunted game that uh, it selects for different birth dates. With wild boar, it selects for early birth dates, and I think of things things like birth date are are selected for strongly. I mean, there's a lot of selection pressure for birth date, so it's there's a lot of it's finely tuned to the environment. Birth date is like Mm -hmm. when you look at ungulates. They across the northern hemisphere, they're always born. Native ungulates are always born. Oh, and this is true for convention or for for non-native ungulates like livestock, because we we manage them this way on purpose. Yeah. They're born in the spring so that as their nutrient demands increase, so does forage quality. Yeah. So if, if you're doing things, if hunting pressure is messing up birth timing, it's messing up the balance, the match between nutrient demand yeah. and forage quality. So um, they're totally they're, fucked if they don't if they don't give birth at that time period. Yeah. There's, there's, no, there, there's thank there's, you for yeah. thank you for yeah. <laughs> there's no um, unringing that bell. It's also why they have the big debate about how we need to. We need to micromanage spring turkey season better. Okay. Because okay. 
you 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 really disturb the nesting and like some know, years they 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 nest way earlier than yeah others because okay. there there there's a, a plethora of variables that influence that and the likelihood that the second nesting site will be more optimal than the first is i think a, a lower probability and so as the if that nesting site isn't perfectly there with their mix of of proper cover and then um, the ability for the young poults to be able to move around, get their nutrients to kickstart until the time that they can get up in the tree. You know, that's where you're seeing, we're trying to figure out why turkey numbers are vanishing in a lot of areas. Aha, uh-huh. this is interesting to me. Yeah. That's, so, yeah you, and that's doable. Like you could look at what kind of, the fish and yeah. wildlife management agencies could look at what kind of spring you're having and say, yeah. we're going to push it back this spring. Or yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. I think that that can be another um you can almost make it more of a abstract sub point within the the ever growing hunt quietly list of, of Yeah, things. yeah. Are you a turkey hunter? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um then uh the last one that I have I can't even remember what this one is about, so I'm just going to have to read it. Oh, this is a review article again. Mm-hmm. Evidence from aquatic systems emphasizes evolutionary effects on age and size at maturity, while terrestrial systems changes are seen in weapon size and date of parturation, parturition, which is birth. Um, mm-hmm. So weapon size would be stuff like horns. Yep. So this is, again, the fact they're saying that hunting pressure causes evolutionary change in in date of parturition, which is something that happens in wild boar, I know. Um, oh, we were just talking about that one. But in other species as well. Um, yeah. qu- then they go on, the authors go on to say, we, we suggest that while harvest-induced evolution is likely to occur and negatively affect populations, the rate of evolutionary changes and their ecological implications can be managed efficiently by simply reducing harvest intensity. So they're saying, I guess, that some of these things are reversible, which you would, if they're highly selected for, you could see, because if if you if if populations start to, to um, develop traits that are advantageous under high hunting pressure if you reduce hunting pressure they're going to re- they're going to those traits are going to disappear and they're going to go back to the way they used to be so yeah. anyway lots of evidence that hunting pressure is high hunting pressure is so, not good for conservation yeah um, I, and i think I, it's I, terrible for habitat would you um would you agree that that there's sort of a if we pick the mechanism, whether it's cortisol, whatever, that there's sort of a a tolerance that they can that a given animal can live within, but it's when they go beyond that a certain threshold, that's the sort of escape velocity for a lot of these these negative impacts to occur. I think it's probably a dose response. Yeah. thing like if 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 an so it's animal the cu- it's the it's the cumulative 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you could okay. see, well, look at like, look at like these tribes in Africa that run down animals until. Yep. The, they just the, until yeah, they yeah. can't, until they can't run anymore and you kill them. Like yeah. if you just ran those animals for a second, if you just harass them for a second, it's probably not going to have very strong deleterious effects. But if you yeah. run them and run them and run them, eventually yeah. you get to the point where they can't even defend themselves. So yeah, I think, you know, it's just a, and I'm not saying this as from the standpoint of somebody's, I'm a freaking avid hunter. I worry wildlife constantly. I'm always, you know, and I'm not, and I'm not a good hunter. So <laughs> like, I'm always spooking stuff and running around all the time. So it's not, I'm not saying this from the standpoint that, that we should give up hunting or reduce our hunting because of this because it has negative consequence i was saying when we're talking if you want to make the point if you're tra- yeah. if you're coming at me with we need more hunters for wildlife's sake i'm trying to say there's another there's another side of the coin there yeah yeah it, i mean and so i'm reminded of a lot in the fishing world there's a place called the western dry rocks it's it's down in the lower keys in florida and yeah down in okay. down in the keys and it is a big uh spawning aggregation site for permit super mm. popular game fish both both fly and spin rod i i speared a permit last year oh my god that's 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 a cardinal sin in my world <laughs> I, I i i relished every friend fly fishing friend of mine that i sent a picture of that to. <laughs> oh. oh i'll tell you one thing i'll tell you something about those permits that you'll never know firsthand ben what's that you ready brace yourself they're delicious oh i've known that <laughs> don't 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 i i i that that that's part of the we- reason why they've got such protective status i mean it's like oh really it's, like, it's yeah it's like kissing a mermaid i mean they taste phenomenal. Oh, they, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because oh, of I um, I, I mean, because you'll people will still eat a lot of the a few of the well, a few of the species that they're kind of related to. But yes, I I had yeah, pomp like pompano. pompano. Yeah, they're yeah. they're they're they look a lot like a, like a pompano. They're a beautiful um, fish. Now, I'll tell you this one, this thing, this much. This one was hanging out on a coral reef, so yeah. I didn't feel like I was. Well, who knows? The next day he could have sauntered over to a flats where you could have fished for him, but yeah, man, he was a long ways away. No, they 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 play both games. And okay, um, yeah, yeah. So usually when when they're not, when they're on the flats, it's it's a specific time to feed, and they will be moving. But they remember when they were smaller, and things came from up top to kill them. So they are they're a different fish. Okay, there's um. The easiest way to fly fish for them, you can only do this in certain spots. It's more in deep channels that feed out into the open ocean. And crabs will sit on top of a certain mangrove. And they know to come up and they kind of figure out if there's a crab on some of them. And they'll just come up and smash it. You know, Mm. so it's a cool surface bite. Mm -hmm. And so you can create a crab that sort of simulates just hanging off of that leaf. And okay it's, it, it's so oh that's suck, really cool i didn't know that people yeah, fish for them that way well it, it it can only happen the 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 tide um 
the tides really got to be perfect. And part of so the you cast got... out right next to a mangrove that's draped over the ocean, and you got it. No, nope. so, it, so it's still in the open water. These are all leaves that have come off. You know, oh. you're, you're doing it. In, you're almost doing it in something that looks like a river, but it's it's part of the mangrove channel. Yeah, that's leading out, and you'll see big busts. And when you see those busts, you'll kind of try to reorient yourself and and get a drift towards them. Yeah. So, um, some people disagree, but that's sort of if if your dog shit at the real game, that's a cheap way to get one on a fly rod. Okay. So that you know you. What's can the real game? The real the real game is is you get your butt on a skiff, and you start pushing it around, and you find one tailing or, or cruising or a group tailing or cruising and you get that that fly exactly where it needs to be at the exact right time and hopefully he eats it so i've casted that them some bitches one time a few years ago for like four hours and i must not have done the right time right place thing because they were having none of it so i it was with a was a with a, a great deal of vindication that I whacked this one with my pole spear. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, hey, uh, hey, hold on one second. I got a tinkle. Yep. I'll be right back. Oh, okay, okay. I'll do the same. All right. Yeah. We'll come back uh refreshed. All right, we're back. Did you wash no. your hands? No, because I had a I had to go get a uh little uh spoonful of goldfish too so no time what eat uh you know goldfish crackers oh cra- okay okay yeah so, so you didn't you didn't wash your hands and then you ate goldfish oh i have i have my immune system needs little upkeeps from time oh, to time so this you know is you're a man for my old heart because like i've always maintained that you if you wash your hands after you take if you take a leak you're admitted admitting one of two things you're admit, either your junk is so gross that you have to wash your hands after you touch it or that you peed on yourself. Yeah. Well, that was always the only reason that I could see to, to wash your hands is because you got some, some drippage on you. Yeah. Well, other, I, you are touching the handle. Um, but I always put yeah. my, I always put my shirt or my sweater over my hand and touch it with that and flush <laughs> it with that. Even in my own house. Oh my God. Would you, uh, what are you like, a Howie Mandel germaphobe or? <laughs> I didn't know Howie Mandel was a germ. Yeah. Oh, germaphobe. yeah. Uh, just, I'm uh, always, always trying to, like, I've always, I always say when I'm trying to do that, like, say somebody that was, I always say Seinfeld, I guess he's. Yeah, I could see that. He's, you know, the way he always tucked his shirt in on those episodes made me know he had a, a stick up his butt. Oh, um, I only knew that because. Somebody told me, or I read it somewhere, not Uh-oh. because of how he acts, but 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 you so, were going to you were but, you were moving towards a grander point. Yeah. So so point. here's what so so Western Dry Rocks, big permit spawning aggregation site. Okay. So at a certain time of year, they all go out there, and fishing guides love to go there and catch permit. So they're disrupting them during, uh, it's either a spawning or a pre-spawning activity. I forget the exact, but so they're messing them up there, but the sharks key into that so well that I forget what the statistic is, but 
a lot of times you're pulling up half a fish. Oh. And oh. they started to correlate that with, hey, we're going and asking all these guides who are out on the water, you know, between 150 and 300 days a year, why aren't we seeing more permit? And so they were able to figure out at a minimum, we got to stop doing this. But there was a lot of push. There was a war disagreement between the flats guides and and the sort of more bay boat guides because they love to go fish there did they outlawed fishing there so now the western dry rocks during permit spawning closed oh wow so you can put that that in the wind column but it wasn't it wasn't easy you know i yeah. I, I heard some things about you know the more sort of uh fishing celebrities who helped try to push it across the finish line they'd get you know dead permit you know on their kids swing set or stuff like that so oh oh but it, okay. okay but i mean it, it just yeah. goes to the broader thing of i mean you got to be creative and resilient and figure out more spots yeah um yeah. when particularly when it when it rises to the level of putting species potential species extinction either on a planetary scale or even a regional scale you know so we'll we'll see exactly what what the benefit there is but the broader point too is on i mean on fishing and this just because you release a fish doesn't mean it's not going to die and there's been a lot of advancement and research on the techniques about how to improve the survival rate of caught fish you know i mean imagine running as hard as you can for as long as you can and then right when it stops someone puts a bag over your head you know that that's what happens when you catch a fish yeah and i'm just not a yeah just not something i think about because i'm just not a catch and release guy yeah like and, i'd rather just not catch a fish than uh, wor than worry it unnecessarily i mean no one would be happier than i if permit were so abundant that i could that would be the icing you, on the cake right right you know, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's like, there's so many people that do it. It's like, I'm, I don't, so many people not, that kill would, permit. No, so many people that, that hook fish and, and exhaust them and then turn them back loose. I mean, it's like, if I was king, I wouldn't outrule, I wouldn't outlaw it. I wouldn't make it so you couldn't do it. It's like, I'm not, it's not a stance I have. It's just like, to me, I just feel bad doing that. Either if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna torture it, yeah. If I'm going to put a hook in the water that a fish might bite, then I want to be prepared to eat it if he does bite it. Yeah, I go back and forth with uh, who's being the bigger dick, the guy who kills it or the guy who releases it. Because it when you when when we you you're still kind of. Well, the guy, the guy, okay, but there's a third guy. He's, that's the guy that does neither. Yeah. And that I guy, mean, there, it, that it, guy's it, definitely the least dick. Yeah. There's, I mean, I, I, well, that assumes if we're if talking nobody, about permit right now yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But you I know. mean, it's, it's, it's equally applicable, um, you know, to the sort of, uh, uh, primary game fish species. I mean, I'm sure it's, it's equally applicable to, to, you know, rainbow trout, whatever. Um, but it, it seems like maybe a little more in salt water, you know, I've screwed up in times and released a bonefish too early and they get smoked. 
you know. And oh, like they not they don't got their wits about them and they get hit by a shark. Yeah. Have you yeah. ever eaten a bonefish? I I I'm eating roadkill before I'm eating a bonefish. I think oh, I I ate a bonefish once in Mexico. It was pretty good. Really? So you know how, how did yeah. they make it? I made it. Oh, you did. And you, you just kind of guess and just use sort of fisherman's intuition the way you because it, it doesn't it have those little forked pieces in it too, and it's not a. I don't know. If it's, I don't. It was too long ago, but they just treated it like you would any old fish, flayed it uh, out, and ate it. You know, uh, it was good. Um, uh, the ca- how casual you say that is is near blasphemy. <laughs> I know, but it's like. It's just so funny. So much of this stuff is arbitrary. Like, like I say, how is that worse? I mean, than just it's it's only in the sense the fish, of worrying the fish and exhausting him. Just not not so that you can eat and sustain yourself, but just for the joy of harassing. It's one side the of joy. joy of. Like the the physical tactile sensation in your in the your rod butt of the fish being alarmed. I think I think about that. Why don't I just have you know? Why don't I just tie the end of my fly rod to my dog and let him have at it? Would that give me the same thing? Where do you where do you where oh do you come it, down? it it's not even fucking close because to your point about getting something by your wits. It's a wonderful thing to be able to fool an educated fish. Yeah, and I'm kind of acting like I'm less knowledgeable about this stuff than I am. I mean, I have bonefished even even as like in the last few years. And mm. and yeah, it, it simulates hunting. It simulates the joy of yeah. hunting. Yeah, I mean I, I draw very little distinction between saltwater sight fishing with a fly rod and yeah. even to some extent a spin rod and, and hunting. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's a beautifully visual thing. Um, but yeah, but I, mean, I the, go to, the, I go to the Bahamas a lot. My wife yeah. and I, we love to go down there, but you know, there's great bone fishing in the place where we go, but we both just want to, we'd rather go out and stab something we can eat or try to find some conk. Yeah. You know, conk is, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm quite partial to that too. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, there's a place too, if you want to talk about preservation of habitat and, and keeping things on a decent trend line, you know, the Bahamas, I think generally gets what those fish do for the economy. And, the amount of mangrove degradation is, is I think, not getting abysmally bad. Uh, yeah, this lot, this island that we go to, there's very little development there. It seems very sustainably managed. Like the re- reefs, we go out and fish. You know, you yeah, you don't see very many people. Uh, yeah, my, my wife and I, if we see them, we'll stab lionfish. That's they're good. Del- Get yeah, them. they're delicious, and you know. As long as you don't get poked. Yep. Um, Isn't it only the first four spines or it's all the spines? Oh, I don't know about yeah. that. I, but it, it, it's, um, I think pretty much 
almost every restaurant in the Keys will, if you bring them a lionfish, they'll cook it for you because they recognize the invasive problem that it is. Oh, yeah. Well, the, in, there's a lot of lionfish fishing tournaments in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's. I, my, my brother got poked when, one day when we were spearfishing with lionfish mm. and, and he was out of commission for three hours. Like he was yeah. in too much pain to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Rockfish will do that same thing. Like this, we have, my brothers and I have this cabin up in Alaska that we fish at. Mm. If you get poked, there's, there's several species of rockfish there. And I don't even know if that's, if they're in the same genus or whatever yeah. as lionfish, but lionfish, I think they are. Yeah. But, um, man, you get poked by one of them and you need a serious timeout. Mm. There's, it's not just the, it's this, not just the mechanical injury. There's some kind of, yeah, it's, venom. it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a snake bite, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, what, just out of curiosity, I was thinking about Alaska. Um, where does the grayling rank in terms of tastiness in your mind relative to the other stuff in Alaska? Mm, I, I mean, I'd say it's similar to a trout or a, or a Dolly Varden, you know? Yeah. A, it's a, yeah. It's far, it's a char, you know? Uh, but I don't think it's as good as so like well, I think it's, it's a white it's a white fish right it is white flesh yeah yeah yep. but yeah. I still felt like you're right it's not like a trout it's more like I think it's like a purified walleye if that makes sense you've eaten them oh yeah 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 not I mean, I, I, I I've only eaten them on one hunt, on one hunting trip where we caught some yeah so I mean they're they're uh. You know, they'll, they'll bite a anything, you know, you can almost throw a bear hook a lot of times and they'll just come up and sip it. It's a great way to learn to dry fly fish. Oh, I bet. Is grayling. Yeah. That's a good the, way to. The trip that where I caught them was we were on the North slope of Alaska. We were hunting along. We drove 24 hours from Anchorage up to the North slope. And then we drug these canoes up the river uh, river until we were five mi- more than five miles from the pipeline because you have to ignore more than five miles from the pipeline pipeline to shoot a rifle yeah and that could go bad and uh yeah yeah it seems like a good <laughs> rule um five miles seems a little extensive but yeah could happen but anyway we we brought our fishing rods we'd never none of us had ever been there before because somebody said there was fish in there and but the whole while I'm thinking, yeah, right, because this thing is this river we're lining our canoes up is just, it's like class three freaking rapids the whole way. Oh, oh. But I found the s- slowest place I could cast out, and I was like, okay, first cast, Grayling, and then we start catching Arctic char too. Um, where did you? Yeah. Where have you caught them, Grayling? Um, all the. Alaska fishing I've done has been in, in the Bristol Bay area. So, um, you know, kind of Lake Clark national park, all the way out towards Togiak. If you're familiar with, with that part, um, you know, it's, it's (laughs) the grayling for some people told me that, you know, 
their living's fishing out there. When they started telling me they they saw trouble in grayling numbers, I stopped eating them just mm. out of abundance mm. of, of caution. Yeah. Um, but even there, like talking about mortality, the way you have to handle a king salmon today is totally different versus 20, 25 years ago. You know, now if you're, if it's not going to be one you stamp, you can never take it fully out of the water. Oh, okay. You know, so, which is, I, I think certainly a mitigating, you know, uh, fact for keeping that mortality higher. Lower. So, yeah. Mortality lower. Yeah. Cause I mean, uh, you know, my favorite char mm. and one of my favorite fish of all, but out of all fish is, is lake trout. Really? Oh man. I think they're so good. They're so fatty. If you brine them and smoke them. Mm. Okay. In the, I was uh... in a, I was in a, I, I, I have friends that ice fish quite a bit. I ice fish quite a bit, but I don't like to ice fish for, I like to fish for, for perch and bluegills. Yeah. Um, but these guys that I know, I have friends that go up and sit out in the lake on the ice all weekend and try to stab one pike or catch a walleye or two that are like they're mm-hmm. trophy ice fishermen mm-hmm. on this big reservoir north of here and they catch lake trout and they'll just give them to me. And oh man, they're so good. So That's good. It. I mean, I know that they are. I'm not surprised that they're more fatty because they got to deal with a little bit more of a harsher life than a lot of yeah. the other salmonoids. Um, but they're not a salmonoid. Um, they are a char. A char is still a, a, a subspecies of salmon, though, right? Oh, it is. Oh, on all those. Uh, you know, it's on every fish camp, whatever in Alaska, like species of Alaska. It's white and it's got all the. I, maybe the I'm wrong. Maybe salmon is a but. family. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Sa- I, think, Sa- char, I Sa- think char is a different family. Salmonoid is is more the whatever it is the uh, salmonidae. I think yeah. Is okay, but I think yeah, I think I'll look this I'm up. Curious now, myself. I'll look, I'm going to type in char family see if i'm right that's a family you know how to keep all this shit straight up don't you uh king kingdom phylum yeah Yeah. king philip uh well i just know kingdom phylum class order family genus species yeah very good yeah my biology teacher would be proud is a genus of salmonoid fish oh salmonidae is a genus yeah that okay. that's what I was ref- that that was the the level I was going for. Okay. Subfamily salmon salmon A. Yeah. Oh no, you're right. Char family are salmonids. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, you're you're you still Here have a PhD. Here I am disseminating misinformation uh, about the hunting about about wildlife on a hunting podcast but but so there were no mishaps on the canoe no well that's that's oh yeah what am i saying yes there there were yes there was uh yeah uh, one night one of my brothers and i we crossed the river to hunt and then we're coming back 
we got across the river in the canoe and I didn't take stupidly. I didn't take my backpack off and I had a bunch of weight in it and got, you know, so my center of balance was way high and I mm. rolled that freaking canoe. And that was, I had, that was when I was a, that's when I was a doctoral student and I had a, I had a GPS unit that they'd given me for my project. <laughs> and, uh, uh, cause I needed it to navigate to places yeah, yeah. for doing vegetation sampling. And I kind of discreetly brought it up there. And I was so terrified that it had gotten waterlogged and destroyed. Oh my god! But it didn't. It hadn't. That was yeah. that was like a nineteen. No, that was like two thousand. Two thousand on the butt. And that okay. thing was. That thing was about as big as a loaf of bread. It was freaking huge. Yeah, I bet it had to be back then. With yeah, how well they were designed. It's um. It was a military issue one. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so it maybe had some more ruggedized, you know, features to it or something like that. It, yeah, I got it out of the water and dried off as as mm. quickly as my future employment prospects would allow. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I well, I, the only reason I was curious is you know a good way to figure out if you like hunting and fishing or love hunting and fishing is what happens when shit really goes bad. Yeah. And I was sort of thinking back on, I was probably, I was probably 14 or something like that. And, and my dad grew up in Alaska and, and had a lot of friends that were friends whose fathers were sort of part of the pioneers of outfitting up there and doing a lot of the the big game hunts. And so my dad to sort of keep up with the Joneses, he wanted to get back into doing it DIY. And there's a fairly large boulder in the largest, in the greatest, in a river that has the highest per capita trout of any river in North America. And we bumped our way up river. And so we didn't have enough confidence to go down river, but we basically ran out of food and we were hoping somebody would come by because they, some lodges would leave drift, uh, you know, um, flat bottom boats there. And, and, but they weren't coming out because of weather or they were fishing somewhere else. So we basically were out of food and, um, he finally says, screw it and starts blasting down river to get up on step. And you come around this bend and there's, you you can't go out on the far side cause it's all, other rocks and it's more like spawning gravel and it's right when you come around a bend and so it's maybe 15 feet wide something like that between the bank and the boulder you know that's your that's where you got to go and right as we come around the bend we see a bear on the right side outside of the boulder who kind of startles us but then another boat coming up river right at the same time and the guy coming downstream downriver obviously doesn't have as much maneuverability and I remember seeing it and just, I looked back and closed my eyes and sure enough, three seconds later, it's a thud that I will never forget. One guy comes flying out, hits me, 
you know, looks all chaos. And then we kind of catch ourselves together and we look around, we think, oh, we're okay. And then another quarter mile, whatever, we get out into the lake and I look Wait, back. what's this guy? The, the guy, you're one of the guys in the boat with you ran into you, flew into you. He flew into me because we hit the boulder. I didn't know what we hit because I looked away. Okay. I was a little kid. All, okay. all I remember okay. is a thud. And yeah. so there was no, we obviously didn't hit the other boat. Right. And you just kept on rolling. So we kept on rolling. We get out into the lake. I look back and I see water coming up. You know, this is like a, uh, like a Woolridge jet boat. So, you know, you've got the casing over, over the, the motor. And then, you know, you've got a little depression where the little walkway is. It's, it's, it's got a hard top, but it's got soft zipper up sides and there's starting to be more and more water in the center. And so then we finally pull into shore outside, pull the top off and there's a big, like eight inch gash. That's also raised. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we stop, we're just, you know, sitting on the bottom by the shoreline. And then that same bear comes over the point, you know, and he kind of puts his ears up. He looked like he was just that right age where he was curious about the world and hadn't mm-hmm. learned. And so he comes down, messes with us even more, finally moves on. Um, well, I think he was. Friend- he, well, he, he was he was mad dogging you. Yeah, I think I think he was just generally stink curious. Eye, he's kind of stink eyeing you a little he, bit. He he. So we we got all our shit out of the boat and put it on shore, and then we saw him. So he was loving you know playing with our stuff, and then he put his front paws up on the front of the boat, and that's when my grandfather had his handgun ready. He wasn't he wasn't going to take any chances. You know, he was, seemed a little too giddy, but anyway, that, that bear moved on long story short, we were there a while and we luckily found a guy who had a little outfitter kind of fish camp deal from Hawaii who had enough spare stuff for us to MacGyver that thing all the way home, but it took an extra three days and, Oh, you patched the leak. You're saying, well, basically we had to chop my waders up and my gravel guards to try to make that, you know, sort of a waterproof, um, to sort of stick in the gash, but we had to take, we had to take a mallet and, um, some spare wood. And I remember holding it to try to get the gash down to level. Yeah. So that it would shrink the size of it so we could fit fit something in there. Um, so, but the point is even with all that bullshit and no food and stuff, I was like, ready to come back next year yeah it's weird man how that happens yeah hunting so, and fishing is such a pain in the ass i don't know why i do it I, <laughs> well but it's but yeah you go through some kind of ordeal like that and then you're like oh can't wait to get home and you spend a few days at home you're like oh i can't wait to do that again even yeah. though it was like the most miserable experience imaginable hey listen um i think i'm gonna i I'm so excited about this episode. I've had some shitty ones lately that I think I'm going to close it down because it's good. We had some factual content. We had some hunting stories. So like, it just seems like a good, well-balanced. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I'd say we, uh, 
yeah, we got we got two percent of the material done. Oh which, well, which we'll is good. we'll have a sequel. All right, yeah, man. Um, ben and Matt part two. Yeah, yeah. There's well, we got we got to talk about figure out what you're going to do to atone for the sin of killing that permit. <laughs> You, yeah. you 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 started off in such a positive part of the ledger. Yeah, no, yeah, no, now, no, now in your mind, I'm somebody that needs retro, like needs forgiveness. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll yeah. bring it before the the hunt quietly committee. We'll see how many other fly fishermen <laughs> are out there. You, know, you, you can imagine us on real high on real high sort of like judge, you know, outposts and a spotlight on you. Yeah, yeah. render judgment. Yeah, well, man. Yeah, it's I. Yeah, like I say, I rel. It shouldn't have, but I relished sending that to my fly fishing compadres. <laughs> all right, have uh, a good night. Great. All right, man. With yep. You, you too. Okay. Bye.